Well, Merry pre-Christmas Eve. What do you call it in the morning? It's so awkward and weird. I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, what comes before Eve? And I realized Adam. So what we, we call this is Christmas Adam. Yay, fantastic. So, so good with you to be with you this morning. And not just because it's Christmas, but it's also the fourth Sunday of Advent. And for me, I love this season. And part of the reason, and I actually did a podcast a little bit on that this week, um, is as I've gotten older in my faith and I've grown a little bit more as I look at the Bible, I, I found myself kind of shifting from being so focused on all of the trees of the proof texting to kind of the forest of the story. Right? That God is engaged in epic storytelling. And that's what you see from the beginning to the end of the Bible is this whole giant unfolding thing. And I think when you read it at that level, it taps into the deepest things uh, that our heart really craves. That I think in the sense of the human condition, what we most desire in life when we see the brokenness and the hurt and the tragedy and the hatred of our world, we crave the things of peace and joy and hope and ultimately love and that's why then advent kind of grounds us in those themes and reminds us that we're a part of this bigger story that's playing out and it wants to move us in the story to embody and embrace those ideas more and more in our own life because that's what the world needs to see it needs to see the essence of those words in what we do how we live how we engage our climate and so that's why I love Advent. And so on this fourth Sunday of Advent, this theme of love, which is the theme, the big idea, God sends Jesus into the world for love, man, we're gonna anchor ourselves in that today. We're just gonna kind of bathe in that a little bit and hopefully from that, be motivated and moved to greater things in our world. So let's go ahead and pray together as we do this. Jesus, I thank you again so much for your love and grace toward us. I thank you that you desire to move upon our lives in such a way that we are genuinely moved. And from that, we then engage our surroundings with your priorities. I thank you that it is by your presence in our lives that we sense genuine peace, true joy, lasting hope, and from that it generates deep, deep love through our lives. I pray that we will grab that today. We will run with that today. We will sense your love for us today. And, and, and really then from that, that we will be unstoppable in this life. And so we come before you as a people that are desperate and broken and needy, but also deeply, deeply and profoundly touched by what you've done for us. We thank you for all your goodness and for your grace and your good and perfect name. Amen. All right, so Christmas is an interesting season, and I think probably aside from the fact that, you know, we love all of the different elements of it, I think it's interesting because if you kind of looked at your calendar and the amount of time invested into this holiday, it's about one-tenth of your year. I, have you really thought about that? I mean, it's weird, right? That for this one singular day, we prep for weeks. So you do like Thanksgiving, and then the day after Thanksgiving, we call it Black Friday. It's not Black Friday. It's put up the tree and decorated Friday. Except for some of you, including me, that were a little early this year and kind of advanced it, right? But we set it up there in November, and then it runs all the way through to, at least for most of us, sometime in early January, one-tenth of our lives. And I get it because I think there's something about this holiday that taps into all of our senses. 
We can smell the peppermint. We can taste the cocoa. We can feel the hugs and see the lights and hear the music, right? Everything is kind of pulled into that space. And as we do that, as we prepare for that one singular day, I think the heart behind it is that we know that throughout life, life is hard and painful and disappointing. But we want that one day to be so extra special where those words that we crave that I was talking about during Advent, those ideas of hope and peace and joy and love would be embodied in this single morning on December 25th. And if I was to use my philosopher's brain for a minute and try to figure out why is that and put my sociological hat on, I think at the core of what we're trying to do on Christmas morning is recreate a thing that was lost. We're trying to recreate Eden. We want those things that were once so true to the human condition and have been so lost ever since. We want it to materialize on that day. So much so that, you know what we do in our living rooms? We put a tree right in the middle of our little Eden garden to say, all right, bring it all together. And yet here's the thing I've also come to realize and think about as I think about Christmas. And that is the fact that the very first Christmas came into the world because Eden was lost, right? The, the thing that we're doing on that Christmas morning is wanting to recapture the thing that we know was fractured and broken in the process. In a very real way, the very first Christmas was designed to come in and undo the damage uh, that it had occurred and, and happened because we lost our access to Eden. In fact, we remember even last week, we looked at this theme of hope. And we noted that right after the fall of the man and the woman in the garden, uh, when everything seemed bleak and lost and there was no hope, against hope, God subjected the world to futility because he wanted to do something great in the midst of that. And inside that story is God's like, to the serpent, you are cursed, and to the woman, you're cursed, and to the man, you're cursed, and to creation, you're cursed. In the middle of that story, though, there was that kernel of hope where God's like, but there will be an offspring. There will be one who comes and undoes the damage that was done in that space. One that would restore, restore true hope and deep peace and enduring joy. All of which would come through this redeeming love. And what I particularly love about the Christmas story is that when God comes into the world in the person of Jesus, he does not come as the guest of honor. He does not come as the type of person and personality that everybody says, oh, we're going to magnify you because you have proven yourself as so worthy in the realm of finance and power and strength and military might. He doesn't come that way. No, he comes as a lowly servant. He comes to be, in essence, a slave. And so Jesus, who is God, comes into the scene in a way very different than our nativity scenes and Hallmark cards. We sing about things like, all is calm, all is bright on the night that he arrives, but that's not the story, right? And even the essence of this whole thing is not come all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant, but it's really more like come all ye faithless, joyless, and defeated, because the space in which he arrives into the world, those were the conditions. In fact, I think it's even interesting. I think about the personalities that are directly tethered to the story. Right? Somebody like Joseph, 
right? Instead of Jesus being born into the home of a king, he's born born into the home of a man who just works with his hands, swings a hammer, blue collar, younger guy trying to figure it out, hasn't gained all of the wisdom of years of life. He's kind of starting in to kind of adulthood, and now his life's going to be rocked, changed. But, But that is the essence of how Jesus comes in a lowly way, just looking at his earthly adoptive dad. Or look at the town in which Jesus is born into. He isn't brought to Rome. He isn't brought to some giant, you know, metropolis. No, he comes to a town that is lowly and simple. And his parents come from a place called Nazareth, which was dumpy, man. Like, it was so bad, even the Piggly Wiggly's like, we're not moving in there. Nah, man, that place is too crazy. Nothing good comes from that town. And then he comes to this mother, Mary, barely a teen, unsophisticated, uneducated, untested, unremarkable in many ways. And for her particularly, I think about how interesting it is that what her life is in essence is suddenly an unplanned pregnancy. She wasn't looking for this. She wasn't asking for this. In fact, look at the story closely. The angel doesn't show up to Mary and say, hey, are you willing to go along with this story? No, the angel says, guess what? God has injected you into the story. You are already with child. Now, what are you going to do with that reality? See, that is the story of Christmas. God is coming to to nobodies from nowhere with nothing, but he's doing that to change everything. He's coming in with the great counteroffensive, like, yes, all was lost, but now in the birth of this child, all will be found, and all will be made new. But it comes through his humility. In fact, I think the essence of his birth with all of that kind of simplicity and, and, and that kind of human frailty, I think that opening captures the essence of his heart as he does all that he does in his earthly ministry. In fact, Paul writes about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. And he tells us to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. So this is where we sit up and we kind of lean forward and go, oh, okay, if I'm to do anything, I'm going to be like what he was. And what was he? He says, well, though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Right? So you can be like, hey, man, I'm the one that made you. I'm the one in charge. I have all power, all authority, all strength, and I'm going to wield all of that over you. He doesn't come that way, though he could, but he doesn't cling to that. Instead, he does almost the direct opposite. It says, instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, And being found in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. See, I love the in the dirtedness, if that's a word I just made up, of the story. Right? So his parents are nobodies. They're from nowhere. Now he comes as a nobody to nobodies from nowhere. But you know why he does this? Because he wants to show his love to a bunch of somebodies, including every one of you in this room, every one of you watching online. He's like, I care about you so much. I long for you so much. I dig you so much. You are my jam so much. I am coming lowly for you to touch you, to move upon you, to change you. Now, it'd be easy to read the story 
right, of this young couple and this impending child and be like, oh, that's so romantically tragic and quaint and almost sweet. I well, don't go down that road because I don't think it's that clean, right? I think about Mary, right? She would be terrified, absolutely terrified. You got to remember the world that she lives in. Women don't have control. They don't have power. They're not elevated in high esteem. She lives in a patriarchal system, and suddenly she's pregnant, she's not married, and everybody's going to look at her like, oh, you're the local floozy that got knocked up by somebody. She's going to have stigma, right? Nobody's going to be like, oh, you know what, it's probably God, right? They're just not going to do that. They're going to be like, you're loose, you're a liar, right? You're the problem in our community. In fact, if anything, because you've done this, you might bring a little bit of cursing to our town because God only blesses the blessable and God curses the cursable and you're doing something that's cursable. So that's not going to go well for her. And I think about Joseph, right? He's engaged to her, but he's never been with her. And now she's pregnant and she's telling him. And so it says in the story, he's going to put her away. He's going to break off the engagement. But then an angel comes and says, no, don't be afraid to take this woman as your wife because what is conceived in her is of the holy spirit that in and of itself takes a lot of faith to go like i'm going to trust that dream that i just had with this angel and i'm going to move on that and it's not just moving on trusting the dream it's uh, really even trusting god going forward because as soon as he does that everybody in town's going to be like hey her belly is distended hey you aren't married yet but hey you're marrying her dude you got problems too Again, he's a carpenter, so it probably means he's going to lose work and reputation. He's going to be looked at as a bit of a sucker or gullible, right? You married the floozy with the bastard child. Again, it's not a clean story. It's not quaint and tidy and everything else. No, if anything, what we see at the beginning is that Joseph will suffer, Mary will suffer, and that really gives us a hint that this child that she's carrying, he will suffer as well. And Mary is told that much after Jesus is born. This little child will be the falling and rising of many, and it will pierce your soul. She will never have reprieve in some way. Like, like if Jesus is her son and all that she will face, her soul will always be burdened as a mother for her child. That's the story. Now, you would think at the beginning of the story that, man, because at least they understand the plan, the angels told them what's going to happen, that it's going to be really easy because you just got to execute the plan at that point, right? Once you know the story, you're ready to go. I've found in my life, I can know the story at the beginning, but that does not make it easier to face as you go throughout to the end. And there's nothing easy about the story for them as it unfolds. We find that shortly after this whole kind of discovery and Joseph saying, I'm going to keep her, they find out they have to then go back to his ancestral family home to do a census so they can pay more taxes, right? So automatically, this guy's going to be losing money as he has a mouth to feed. And then to do the census, they have to travel 100 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Imagine 100 miles, you ladies especially, pregnant on foot. Right, for like from Duval to Yakima, like that's what you would have to do. Now, I know some of you are like, but she rode a donkey. Ain't no donkey in the story. I've read the story many times. There's no donkey in there. Might as well say she rode a brontosaurus while you're at it because ain't no donkey. 
But see, this is what we do with the story, too. We, we tend to kind of doctor it up a bit and make it a bit quaint and kind of sweeten everything else. Like, oh, she wrote a donkey, no donkey. No drummer boy. I love the song. No drummer boy. We three kings of Orient are, aren't kings, three, or from the Orient. None of it is true, right? We mess with the story to make it so sweet, but the story is sweet in a different way. But it's sweet in its pain. It's sweet in its faithfulness in the midst of adversity. And so they make this 100-mile journey, and then they come to the community that they're meant to be in, and there she goes into labor, but there's no place for her to labor in. So she finds herself not in a room that would be sweet and quaint, but she finds herself in a stable amidst of stench and livestock. But even that scene captures the essence of the reality of humanity. They roll in, and there's fear and fatigue, rejection and pain, insecurity in the moment, blood, sweat, tears, hardship. I, 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 I've shared this before, but I can't help but try to get inside the story. And I try to think when I was like 20-something Matt. And imagine if Ellen were suddenly in labor and we were away from everybody and we didn't have a hospital and we didn't have a good environment. It's like the back of the car stuck in the woods because you got in a snowstorm. And now here he is trying to bring this child into the world from his sweet wife, right? So he's fumbling. These calloused hands that just work in stone and wood are now trying to bring forth a child into the world. Because listen, they did not train the nice Jewish boys to be midwives. That was not a part of their education. But now he's trying to do it. And then here is his sweet wife, and she's never been in this space. Normally her mother or her aunts or siblings or somebody be around her to help coach her through this. But now she's sweat, tears, fatigue, confusion, stench. Right? Like, like I, I got to imagine that space is so bad that even the shepherds are like, we're going to be in our fields tonight. We'd rather be out in the cold than be in that stinky, dank cave that is the birthing place for this family. And so both are alone without family or elders to guide them, comfort them, or hurt with them. But they're doing all of this for this precious child, this baby who is God, this slave king who is born into rags from his riches, who is now laid to rest for the first time, not in a perfect cradle, but a feeding trough doesn't have a decorative nursery put together by mom who is nesting but just has a cave see the first christmas reminds us of how broken our world is how fragile life can be how desperate our situation was but also in this how loving our god is but he's like, I'm going to come in and do it as you do it. I'm going to face what you face. I'm going to have to be in the same conditions that the, the most rough of, of life circumstances can give you. That is what he experiences. And so he trades heaven's splendor for earth's spite, angelic songs for angry mobs, and a crystal sea for the cross's scars. All of this he does for you and for me. He does it in love. And you got to understand, the love that he's engaging in here isn't some sappy, sweet, uh, again, like rom com type love. 
No, no, it is a love of affection and conviction and relentless pursuit. Like I'm coming after you and I'm giving my all for your all. That is the love that he demonstrates to rescue us from ourselves, from our sin, from our brokenness, from our shame, from our mistakes, right? From our poor calculations in life. You name it, that's what he's rescuing us from. In fact, Paul reveals our problem in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, once, once, oh man, once you were dead. You were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us, every one of us, me especially, right? used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. And so our disposition was against God. And when we were most against God, God's like, you know what, though? I am most for you. And so he pursues his rejectors. Thus, Paul says, while we were this, but God. But God what? God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I love the fact that what moves God in the situation of our failure, our rejection, our rebellion, is he's like, oh man, but I feel mercy for your stupidity. I feel love for your brokenness. I feel grace for your failure. And I want to bring all of that to you. And that is the essence of his love. This is why it says in 1 John, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. See, that's the conviction of God. That's why the last Sunday of Advent is the advent of love in the world, because that is what God is up to. He's coming in, rushing in, sacrificially, to say, this is how I love you. And that love comes in and we don't just feel love. No, he's like, no, I'm putting it in you so it works through you. It's love for you and to you so it travels in you and out of you. So it touches the world around you. In fact, this is what I love what Paul says then going into Ephesians 3. He says, when I think about all of this, I bow my knee. I actually think there's probably a certain level of kind of trembling, like I just can't help but drop to my knees, right? I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. You'll go, great. He wants to give me power from his spirit. Why? He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Awesome. Why? So that you being rooted and grounded in love right may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of god i love that love that is wide and long and high and deep so that it blows your mind changes your life alters the world around you see this is why he came into our pain, our despair, our hurt, our hopelessness, our dysfunction, and our grief. To say this is a love that surpasses any definitions of love that you've ever understood. And he does this so that we can then love without limits. Without limits. 
And, and I think this limitless love comes in three forms. First of all, it is to be a love toward God. Right? Like he's like, I love you so much so that I can birth this love in you so that you can expel it. And the first place you expel it is just vertical. And something John says in 1 John chapter 5, he says, man, this is what it means to love God. That we obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome. And, and this has always stuck out to me, right? Like, okay, well, because sometimes, honestly, when I read the Bible, I go, some of those commands feel really, really burdensome. Really tough. But then I think about my marriage to my wife, Ellie, and, and how in that space, there are times where love is hard to do. There's certain sacrifices that are made. It might even feel burdensome, but more deeply under that is like, man, no, I dig my wife. I love my wife. I'm loyal to my wife. I care for my wife. Even the hard things are ultimately undergirded by this idea that I'm most intensely in love with her. And so when I do these things, they're genuinely not burdensome at their core. And that's the way we're to love God. Like, okay, man, even on the hard stuff, it's still driven by a deeper affection for him. The second way we are to love without limits is to be directed toward those who love us, that we confess that we love. John says, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love, also ought to love one another. Can I tell you why this is so important? And I have found tragically in my own life that some of the people I claim to most love, I also tend to most hurt. Isn't that weird? Most lash out at, most be unforgiving of, uh, most be frustrated toward, like, it's easy to do. I think because our inhibitions are lowered with the people we know the best, and so sometimes we could be the most unloving toward those people. But this is just a good reminder that when God came into the world in the person of Jesus, he did so so we love him, and we love those who love us. But then there's a third category, and that is I believe God's love came into the world so that we could love without limits those who don't love us. Jesus said this, but to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. And what does he mean by love them? Just say, I love my enemies. No, he says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. See, I appreciate this because for me, this is just my personal thing. That is the ultimate test of true Christianity. Loving God for Christians is easy. Uh, maybe even loving the lovely is easy. To love your enemies and do those things toward your enemies, that's the real proof that God has taken up residence in a person if they can do that. And the reason I think Jesus so pushes loving enemies is very simple. Because it incarnates in our lives the very essence of the gospel, which was what? God loving his enemies. Jesus comes into the world with, with, with love when all we had was disdain for God's policies for our life. We wanted to break our rules the way we wanted to, do our own thing the way we wanted to. And he's like, no, man, I'm going to love you still. I'm going to love my enemies and do good. Bless. Right? I, I, I'm going to invest in my love for you. And so that is why I believe we are called to love God, love the lovely, and even love our enemies. Because that is what Jesus came to the world to accomplish. And the more we do that, the more we experience love 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. He says, We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. Now, I know when you read this, it's a little bit weird. Like, it sounds like Yoda is preaching the Bible, right? Oh, live in love, live in God. Hmm? Yes, right? Like, I get it. But the essence of that is so good. 
Like, the more you love, the more you live in proximity to God who is love. The, the more he takes up life in your life and expresses more of those things to the world around you. And I think about the fact that when he came, it wasn't like he came and give us, gave us what we wanted. No, he gave us what we needed so that we can go and do likewise. And so, the true message of Advent and the first Christmas was this essence of God coming to, living among, and investing into the unlovely so that we would know love so that we can then be known for love. And so as I wrap up, I want to remind us all that everything in life, every condition, circumstance, person, problem, thing, whatever, ready, is an opportunity to display love, to really display it. So when you are hated, you get to love. When you're misunderstood, you get to love. When you're mischaracterized, you get to love. When you're tired, you get to love. When you're fatigued, you get to love. When your neighbor is angry at you because you didn't mow your lawn, you get to love. When you're angry at them because they didn't mow their lawn, you get to love. Right? Every circumstance, every condition, every problem is an opportunity to disperse the love of God that he gave to us. And what is love? Love is patient. And it's kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable. And it keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love is always hopeful. And love endures through every circumstance. And when I read that every time, I go, that is to be me because that was God for me. That is still God to me and through me. And so when we think about this Christmas season, we think about God coming into the world, we think about love coming into the world to change the world, to shape the world, to have you shape the world with that love in you. And this wasn't just through the cradle, but it was also through the cross, right? This child comes to grow and to be a man to display that love through that mechanism so that we would be changed, rescued, redeemed, cleansed, renewed, and then sent. As we do this Christmas Eve, um, I love this because we're thinking about arrival, but we're also thinking about, in some ways, kind of his earthly departure. Uh, that this whole thing was a story meant to lead to a cross, to a resurrection for our lives. And so we're actually doing communion today to kind of put the bookends together. Now, if you're a visitor with us this morning and not a Christian, uh, listen, there's going to be a tray that comes by. It's not like our late morning snack. It's our, it's our sacrament. You might not realize this. You may go, I don't know why they're sending me a tray with a little juice bottle here. I don't know what this is, you know. Now, for us, this is really deeply personal and, 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 and beautiful. It captures the essence of what this little child grew up to do, to die for our sins, to make a promise to us, a covenant of love and loyalty. And so if you're not a Christian, you can just let those trays go by. But for those of us who follow Jesus, we want to pause and reflect on what this means for us, how Jesus came for us. In great love, great grace, great mercy, when we were sinners, but God. Right? It's the but God moment of this. And so right now I'm going to ask our ushers to come down to grab the elements. And as they do, I want to prepare our hearts. 
And in preparing, I, I want to start off by just saying, you know what, maybe you're watching online or here in the room, and like I said, you're not a Christian, but you feel like, man, I want to become a Christian today. I want to follow Jesus. I, I want to actually have this tray mean something for me as well, those elements to mean something in my life. For you, that's a prayer away. It is a prayer way where you simply say, Jesus, I admit, I confess, I acknowledge that I've been a part of the brokenness of this world. I've contributed to brokenness. I've received the brokenness. I'm spent on the brokenness. And I thank you that you were broken for me, that you died for my offenses and sins. And Jesus, I want your life to flood my life. I want your forgiveness to touch my life. I want to be rid of my shame. I want to embrace your grace. You make that your prayer your way. He hears you. You are in the family. And when that tray comes to you, that is now your tray too. Because that's your covenant too. Because you've been moved by his love. If you made that your prayer, I would love to know afterward I'm going to be out here. But your first act could be taking this communion. I think that'd be awesome. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, we thank you again for your grace, your mercy, and your love. We thank you for coming into the world. We thank you that this is more than just trees and carols and, you know, just quaint stories, but it is a story of pain and grief, but also grit and grace. We thank you for your riches toward us. We thank you for your life pressed into our lives so that we might live for you and unto you. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you in your good name. Amen.